some of you may or may not be aware, but we started a series we launched last week into this idea as we make it in our holiday season approaching um, of living a life of gratitude. And, you know, we, we are exploring what it looks like for us to embrace this um, personally in our own lives beyond just the holiday season, but as a way of life. And we thought it'd be an opportunity also for our community to participate a little differently in this. And so if you're on Twitter, we just want to invite you to um, participate with us and be able to tweet anything you might be grateful for, people you might be grateful for, situations. You could tweet us at CornerstoneSF and just hashtag it living gratitude. We thought it'd be great to compile a little bit of an expression of what our church looks like when it expresses gratitude. Um, sometimes it goes too many days without ever doing it. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity for us to do that. Now, we are launching, we are walking through this series as we make our way through this letter, a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to a group of believers in Philippi. Uh, we're looking at just pieces of this letter. By the way, it was preempted by a gift that was sent to him out of concern for him. And so he ended up writing a thank you note. Now, thank you note has become the letter of Philippians, and we launched into this, opening his, his opening words. But I think what we're going to see as we explore this a little bit more in depth this weekend together is that gratitude has a way of empowering us when we are walking through challenges in life. Now, when we step into a posture of gratitude in the midst of challenges, we actually receive empowerment right when we think we don't have anything to, that we have control over. Maybe when we most feel at loss for what to do, gratitude empowers us. And here's the deal about that. I'd like to suggest that's what we're going to see that happens. But to do this, it, there, it, very few things are more counterintuitive than to express gratitude in the midst of adversity. Would you agree? I mean, it, it is very hard to naturally desire to express thankfulness when nothing is going our way. Which means that the ability to receive this empowerment or to be empowered by it, the resiliency it gives us, it actually comes down to whether or not we choose to step into something. Whether or not we choose, we make the choice saying, even here, I will embrace what a life of gratitude looks like. And that choice, that choice actually has uh, far-reaching ramifications. It, it, it is able to impact us deeply. Um, it's able to do some pretty amazing things in our lives, whether, you know, we, when we make that choice. And so we're going we're gonna to see that, I think, play out in this account we're looking at. But we have to understand something about Philippians or the people in Philippi. We have to understand kind of how the church began. Because the church community itself was birthed in uh, the midst of very severe circumstances for the Apostle Paul. Um, it was, if you could think of it this way, it was launched out of a point of deep pain in Paul's life. Because Paul, at the time, we know through Acts 16, and you could read it on your, in, in your own time if you'd like, which I recommend you do. But we know that Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, was making his way through um, modern-day Greece, and he came to his town of Philippi. He had a partner in which he was basically going from town to town, telling people, anybody who would be uh, attentive or interested about Jesus. 
And they made their way to Philippi, and he had a partner whose name was Silas. And Paul and Silas, according to normal custom, what they would do is they would go to the local synagogue, and they would try to have conversations with the Jewish believers there about Jesus. And if, if something would occur there, then they would continue the meeting. Sometimes those, those discussions in a synagogue would translate to discussions in the public square. And if not in the public square, then they would move to somebody's house. And that home would be opened up to anybody else who might be intrigued. And what it might look like? Who is this Jesus? And what does he represent? And what does it look like to go, at that time, they called it the way. And this is what they did. And we know that in Philippi, We're told that Paul and Silas made their way to the synagogue. We're not given every single detail, but we know that he was in the synagogue. He was trying to teach, speak about Jesus once again to this group of people listening. And in the midst of this setting in which he is trying to talk about Jesus, there is a girl who enters the picture. And the scriptures describe her as a member of the lowest class of their social um, kind of system. Because it it describes her as a slave girl, a slave girl who was in the business or was, um, if we could put it this way, her employment had to do with fortune telling. And it just says it. There's no qualification. In fact, the scriptures say she, she was actually tapping into some spiritual things. Maybe being unaware exactly what was happening, there was some spiritual dynamic going on in her life. And she enters the room where, or the location where Paul is teaching. And so this is just good for us to understand. Paul is seeking to talk about Jesus. And what does she do? We're told that the scriptures say that she ends up interrupting Paul. And kind of just speaking up in the midst of it. And starts interrupting him time and time again. And so at first, he kind of just tries to ignore her. And continues to do what he's trying to do. Speak to those who are interested. But she wouldn't let up. And, you know. We know Paul to not be somebody who um, lets things go easily. He's a little bit confrontational. And so it, it, this, it actually says Paul got annoyed <laughs> because she kept interrupting. She kept interrupting and badgering him. And so he got frustrated inside. He, he just got really annoyed with her. And he has this confrontation with her. It's pretty intense, actually. Because essentially, his aim is to silence her. And so he, he, if we could put it in our own vernacular, he's, he basically says, be quiet in Jesus' name. <laughs> and, and the passage says that what happened was that when he called upon the name of Jesus, something actually occurred. And something spiritually happened. And whatever was on this girl whatever she was mentally possessed by or whatever kind of state of mind she was in, it actually, it left her. And this girl ended up becoming one in her right mind. She settled down. And she, she was quiet, which is exactly what Paul wanted. But this girl, after having that experience, we would imagine made, their, made her way back to her owner. She was a slave after all. And she made her way back to the owners and her owners discovered that uh, this this kind of drive to be able to participate in that area of employment in, in, in such a region of the world where this was in high demand, it was gone. She was no longer able to do what she used to do. That was, uh, it looks like, a very steady stream of income for her owners. And so the owners become upset and they figure out that it was Paul. They, they attribute her... 
Her inability to do what she used to do that supplied them with income, that is directly correlated to what Paul did. And so they end up getting very upset with Paul. They end up getting enraged because Paul has now threatened something of their livelihood financially. And it turns out that this man, these owners of the slave girl, were powerful people in uh, their city, people of leverage and access to power. And they end up becoming so filled with anger toward Paul that they, they end up starting to accuse Paul and Silas of doing something unlawful and disrupting their entire way of being. Their society is being disrupted by the teachings of Paul and Silas. This is what they do. And they go out to the town square and they start inciting a mob-like mentality. And they start accusing Paul and Silas of doing what is not right. And now, look, they, they, have, they have killed our income stream. What else are they going to do? This is is kind of what happens. The mob mentality starts to take over. And what happens is in this setting, if you can think of it this way, all catalyzed by Paul simply wanting to share the good news of Jesus, something altogether different occurs. That is the setting we step into when we open up our handout and read through this account. And we're told... Just walk through this. We're told in Acts 16 that the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely Um, This is an incident that ends up creating a very shocking and violent retribution for daring to threaten their income. You see it. Um, Their power structure was being threatened by what Paul and Silas were proclaiming and teaching. And it's almost as if they wanted to send a clear message. Don't you dare mess with how we do things. And what's also clear is that now since, listen, their business was threatened. And so what happens? Retribution is coming your way. And not only does this man do this himself, it it seems he has access to the highest authorities. Because what does it say? It says that the magistrate got involved. The representative of Roman power ends up being the one. It says here that he tore the garments off them. It really, it most likely meant he ordered Strip them. Strip them down, now. And all of a sudden, Paul and Silas are finding themselves in this situation. They're being, it, it says, and then he, what, he or, gave orders to beat them with rods. He, he starts to bludgeon them. The injustice of it all. The unbelievable response for what, at the end of the day, if we really look at it, plain and simple, for what? for the fact that a girl was set free. But it touched on value systems. They didn't want touched. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having, verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
the jailer receiving an order clearly ends up doing something. He, he makes sure that there's no way they could escape. And we might think, well, they ended up being brought into the inner prison, which means the, the, the most secure part of this uh, location. And it might mean something like wooden stocks so they can't move. Or we might think of maybe 17th century stocks so that we might be more familiar with in which somebody is basically put out in the town square to be humiliated for a transgression they make. But this, if that were the case, that in itself, it still would not be right. However, we know that the Roman stocks of the first century were a little bit different. They were actually much more torturous. One commentator said that these devious contraptions would contort the prisoner's body into all sorts of excruciating postures, locking limbs and joints in place to the point of making the entire body cramp. The prisoner's body would seize up with searing pain. And then the Romans would just leave the person there for days. And we know We know the extreme way in which Rome utilized its might. We know it. We are familiar with it. Historically speaking, it's not too far to a stretch of the imagination to know that they had a a, a scientific way of doing this. And, And so, look, we don't know exactly what situation Paul and Silas found themselves in, but we know this. We know that when an author writes about stocks coming from Rome, it wasn't simply something to fasten them. It was meant to harm them. And if we could see this, Paul and Silas made their way to this city to do what? To speak about Jesus, the one whom God sent because he loves the world. And in the midst of this, he ends up what? He, he ends up setting a girl free. Out of, yes, out of his annoyance. But that ends up causing unintended consequence, which now brings upon him and Silas the wrath of the entire city. He ends up physically being abused, humiliated. We don't know what kind of emotional harm that would do to somebody. We don't know. But we can imagine. And here's the thing. We, and then they get thrown into prison. No questions asked. No one rising up for their defense. And if they were sitting there and all they would be doing, we would justify, we we would totally understand if their response was exactly what we would expect. Silence, deep discouragement, immediate depression, anger and wrath righteous indignation, which they would have. How dare they? They would be right. We would understand all of those responses, but this this response, the one they make, actually, it not only catches us off guard, it caught those who were immediately in his vicinity, in their vicinity, completely off guard. Because what does it say they do? In these circumstances, what do they do? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Praying and singing to God. Singing. Singing. Now think about that. Oh, it, we must not lose the amazing contrast, the um, sharpness of it, the, the way that they completely 
move against the stream of what any of us would expect. And what happens? We're told that their praying and their singing cause what? The prisoners to listen to them. The prisoners were listening to them. It's almost as if they are sitting there in their prison cell and they, they are the ones who are expressing these sincere, authentic thoughts to God, songs that are prayers to God. And as they are doing that, listen, it, you could almost hear the thoughts of the prisoners is they must have heard the mob. They must have heard what happened to Paul and Silas. They must have seen him enter the prison cell. They must have witnessed this. They must have seen the cuts, the bludgeoning, the pain. But then, to hear a song from them? What? It, it did to them what it would have done to us. If we ever encounter ever encounter someone walking through serious trial, putting on some degree of gratitude, you know what it would do to us? It would stun us into silence. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. It, then something happens no one expected told suddenly in verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened, which we would say, it worked. Paul and Silas did the right thing. Look, this is, this is perfect. This is when we are in trial, we must pray and sing <coughs> and things would unlock for us. That, that's what this is saying, right? Because that's what it looks like, right? Like the earth shook, the door swung open, the fastens unlocked. I mean, you can't get more specific than that. And it's almost as, you know, if we were Paul and Silas, I mean, that is exactly what we, thank you, God. All right, everybody, let's go. <laughs> You're welcome, okay? That's, I mean, we would see it directly as you are free. And, and, and actually, this is exactly what the jailer would have seen too. Because this is what we understand the jailer to interpret. He says, when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He concludes, everyone's gone. Everyone's gone. And, and, and he does something rather extreme. He, he ends up wanting to take his own life. An extreme response for a job by our standards. But by his standards, actually, this wasn't just any job. To be ordered by a Roman magistrate to secure a prisoner and to make sure that they are not to escape, the underlying subtext was upon your own blood. If they escape, it's your life. So that is, that is the degree, the severity. We know this. We know they utilize this not only in this, in this context, but throughout the whole military. There was a structure in place. You don't do this. Severe consequence. It's the end. So the jailer takes the sword and he is about to remove his own life. And we're told that Paul cried it with a loud voice and he's sitting in his own cell understanding the implications of what's happening. Perhaps fully understanding what the jailer is doing, why he is doing it, witnessing what is happening. He's seeing this whole thing transpire. The earth has shaken. Everything is swung open. Everything is unlocked. And you know what happens? Paul and Silas doesn't leave. They don't leave. They do something even more amazing. 
than the song they sung. Because all of a sudden, what do they do? They cry out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We are all here. We are all here. The injured one takes care of the injurer. The one held captive has concern for the one who is holding them captive. What? The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, understanding, how could this be? Sirs, he says, brings them out. What must I do to be saved? Your response here, um, what do I need to do to have what you have? The free man asks the one imprisoned, give me what you have. Because your response shows more power than I can ever imagine. What do I need to do? They said, it's simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Believe. Believe in Jesus. You will receive what we have. We know the jailer and his family became part of this community. The jailer and his family became the part of the birth thing of this church. And we also know Paul, unfortunately, he wasn't unfamiliar with being in jail. About 10 years later, he would find himself in a rather similar situation, awaiting a trial before the emperor of Rome, deciding whether or not his life would extend or end shortly. And in the midst of that, the church of Philippi sends a care package to Paul to make sure that he is supplied with what he needs. And he responds and he says this, look at, look at, look at the irony, or maybe if we could see the dots being connected, what does he say? Look at what he says. He says, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me, the fact that I'm in jail right now, awaiting my trial has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying to them exactly what the jailer knows. I'm here and everyone's watching. And everyone's listening. And everyone is looking at me. And guess what? It's creating an opportunity. My response, God is using it to tell others about him. And what how it must have been for the jailer to hear these words, who himself was one of those, but 10 years earlier. It says, most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is the case. Actually, I want you to understand that I am grateful. If you could hear it, I am grateful for what God is doing in the midst of my challenge. That is what Paul does. That that is the model Paul gives us. You know what Paul shows us? Paul is basically showing us the radical nature of gratitude in the midst of difficulty. It it is a a counter-cultural way. It was 2,000 years ago, and it certainly is today. It is not the way we are accustomed to. 
We understand it. Somebody was talking to me, actually, last night. We were talking about this. In the business world, if somebody does us wrong, we don't look out for their interest. In fact, you know what? Celebrate it. They were just saying how quickly we can give them retribution. That's what's celebrated. It's not just human nature. It's not. It, we live in this environment. And if you could think of it this way, their response that demonstrated resilience, it didn't just reverberate in their own context because it did that. You know what? It continues to echo throughout time. Even now, today, this weekend, we are ourselves witnessing or revisiting what happened. So powerful was the resilience of two people walking through incredible challenge as a life of gratitude, embracing that. So what is this, um, this account, this amazing level that we are given here? What, is it, what does it show us? Well, I'd like to propose just a couple thoughts of what Paul models for us. Paul models for us that gratitude helps us endure adversity with a sense of hope. This is important. Gratitude helps us endure adversity with a sense of hope. Here's what, it, here's what it doesn't model. It doesn't model, here's what they didn't do. They didn't ignore their circumstance. They did not, how could they? They felt the physical pain. And there's no doubt they felt the emotional pain as well. There's no way to ignore their circumstance. You know what they didn't do? They didn't pretend as if everything was okay. That, wasn't, that isn't what they modeled. That isn't what gratitude in the midst of adversity looks like. It's not. Because that's not what they did. They were, they were very well aware of the severity of the circumstances they found themselves in, of how, how steep the deck was stacked against them. They understood there was nobody on their side. They understood this. There's no doubt about it. And yet, you know what they, were, they chose to do? They chose to step into it with a degree of hope. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what was happening. They had no idea. They truly didn't. Nobody could have predicted it. But they chose to embrace a level of gratitude. It gave them hope. And we know, look, some of us, some of us are admirable in the fact that we have certain stories in our past of adversity that we have endured. There's no question about it. But we know there's a difference between enduring adversity with despair and enduring adversity with resilience. There is a difference. There's something of internal fortitude that erupts on one that the other one lacks. And so how, how do we do this? Well, Paul actually tells the Philippians he tells them what he had actually practiced. He told them in, in Philippians 4, he says, I asked him to put this up there. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. You know what Paul's saying? Um, share your heart with God. You're walking through challenges? Okay. Be honest with the Lord about them. Share your request. Draw near to him. Don't do what many of us, and I say us, may be inclined to do, which is when we are in challenging situations, we, what, what do we do? We get angry at God. 
We get upset because you could do something about this and you're choosing not to. You could fix this and you won't. You allowed this to happen. How dare you? Why? We, that is so natural. And yet, what, what, what did Paul model? And what is he telling the Philippians? No, in fact, in the midst of a hard circumstance, go to him. As honestly as you can, share your heart. Show, share your concern, your fear, your doubt. Share what you're struggling with, but do it. Do it with something of gratitude. Do it with something of thanksgiving. How, how, how could we possibly do that when we don't see it? Sometimes we see very little to be grateful about. You know, you know how? You know how? Romans 8.28 says, all things, work to, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That's all things work together. You know what? Sometimes we may not see how this is possibly going to work together for my good. But God, I thank you that you are a man of your word. You keep your promise. I thank you that you don't forsake me. And even here, you're with me. And I feel abandoned, but I know you're with me. I pray you communicate to my senses that you are here. And I'm in this, I, I don't like this. I don't want this. I desire this to be removed from me. But Lord, I thank you that I even have breath in my lungs. I thank you that I'm able to be in the situation I'm in right now. I thank you for the food I have. I thank you for the shelter, the basic things of life that, by the way, aren't so basic in other parts of the world. We have so many things that ends up giving us a degree of hope. And we start, God, I don't know how you're going to get me through this, but I thank you that you are God. You can. You know what starts to happen? We start to get infused with what does he say, that second piece, the peace of God that surpasses understanding. It, it may not make logical sense. It will guard our heart and our mind. It will guard our heart and our mind. This is the promise. This is the remarkable power of living life with God out of a posture of gratitude. It positions us for what he longs to do. Look, many times God longs to do something through us. He does. But it begins by us allowing him to do something in us. It really does. Which is exactly what happened with Paul and Silas. Because gratitude, you know what gratitude does? Gratitude ends up becoming something that um, gives us compassion toward others. When we practice this as kind of a habit of life, a way of life, it gives us compassion for others, especially in the midst of trying circumstances. Um, you know what's remarkable to me, and every time I read this account and I just sit with it for some time, what's remarkable is that the one who was abused, the one who was mistreated, the one who was harmed, the one whom they sought to take everything from was the one who ended up giving the most. It, this is, I don't know how else to explain it other than it, it catches everyone's attention when that happens. To witness somebody suffering with grace and then with concern for those around them, how does that happen? Maybe that's only something that the, like the best of us can do, right? But the truth of the matter is when we start exercising gratitude in our lives, you know what starts to happen? You know, what we are by default declaring is that there are certain things in our lives we simply cannot do on our own strength. 
That's what we're declaring. Lord, I thank you that you are able to move in this area of my life. You are able to rescue me. You are able to give me, give me strength. And I thank you. I open myself up to you. And you know what we start to do uh, simultaneously? We start to declare there are certain things I can't just pull myself up and muscle through. There are certain things I can't just force my way through. There are things that if they are allowed in my life to, to nothing to happen in my soul, you know what? They are able to overcome me. And we start to recognize something of a trail behind us. And when we start to see, you know what? There are things in, in my past, Lord, that there was no way I could have gone through that. And we start to become aware of our weakness. We start to become aware of our frailty. We start to become aware of our lack. And at the same time, we start to become aware of God's amazing ability to hold us resiliently, to keep us in the midst of the storm. And in there, in that place where we are being held together, not by our strength, something starts to shed. A lack of sympathy we might have toward others starts to be removed. And actually, you know what suffering does to us? It softens us. When we draw near to God with our suffering, we are softened. And we become much more empathetic people. And we start becoming a little bit more aware. You know, some people, they react because they're hurt. Because I know because when I was hurt, you comforted me. And if you did not comfort me, I would have responded to. That's the truth, Lord. We start to see that. You know, there are things in my life, Lord, we start to see that, but for your grace, there's no way I could have seen it through. But for God, there's no way. And when we start to recognize that, we can't help but end up finding ourselves in a place where we now start breaking for our neighbors. We start sensing compassion for those in pain around us. They were singing and praying at the midnight hour when everything else went their way. You know, we're okay. You're okay. Don't do it. Don't take your life. No, no, no. It's okay. Because you know what happens? We become conduits. And the invitation, the beautiful invitation that God gives us, even maybe perhaps, especially in this week as we move into situations where we might be surrounded by loved ones or people we're supposed to love. <laughs> or we might be finding ourselves in situations that are actually frustrating and we don't want. Or we find ourselves annoyed and frustrated. You know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe we might sense something not only of God's grace gracious touch inside of us, but we might sense something of his invitation. Will you share compassion with them? Will you extend mercy? Will you show concern for them on my behalf? And we just never know what kind of response that would make, especially when they least deserve it. Because it's when he's least... How could this be? How do I become like that? You see? Such a deep impact a true life of gratitude makes. It doesn't mean everything goes our way. It means that we have the one who can see us through whatever way comes. He's right here with us. 
we are able to live a life of gratitude. And God is able to move in us and through us. May that be the case. May he do that. May he move in our soul, give us resilience. And may those around us actually see it's not our strength. It's the strength of God in us. May that be the case. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving and um, our closing song. But I would love to pray, ask for his blessing, and um, then we'll move into this together. Lord, we just, uh, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you're the one who doesn't shy away from the pains of our life. You, you do not ask us to simply um, figure out our own way. You join us in it. And you join us in it through your own presence, God. You join us even through the gift of your Son, Jesus, who took on suffering himself. And I pray, God, that you would give us the ability to unlock our heart with a sense of gratitude towards you even for the very basic things of life. We thank you, God, for the many things we take for granted that you give freely. The air in our lungs, the new day upon us, the sun that kisses our face. We thank you, God, for the people around us, the community, the many things you have surrounded us with to enjoy. And I pray that you would strengthen our ability to walk through adversity and difficulty with hope. And that you would use us, Lord, possibly, that you would give us peace internally, for sh- definitely, and comfort us, but that then you would give us the privilege of becoming a conduit of your grace in those around us. I pray for this. Help us live a life of gratitude. We ask for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.